you step back from a situation and you say, okay, when I look through the world through this lens, what am I seeing differently? What questions can I ask and what's new? You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Charlie Munger, those who keep learning will keep rising in life. My guest today, Rhiannon Bobien, is very familiar with Charlie Munger. She's the managing editor of Farnham Street Media, serving as the lead writer and editor of the influential Farnham Street blog and Brain Food Newsletter. She's also the co-author, along with Shane Parrish, of The Great Mental Models and the author of the novel Alone Among Spies. Rhiannon, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on the show. That's awesome to be here. Thanks. So I know you're very passionate about writing both fiction and nonfiction, uh, which is, that's hard to do. That's like switch hitting in, uh, in, in baseball here. Was that something, was writing always like an early passion for you or was that something, how, how did you develop that? So I don't know if passion is the right word, but writing is just something I've always done. I mean, it always, I, I have my first book I wrote when I was six, my parents saved it for me. Um, what was it and- about? It was about a day in the life of a little girl and all the adventures she has in that day. By the way, I'm, just, just, I'm going to interrupt you. That about was much more authentic that time. I heard the I heard the Canadian in it when you said it. <laughs> okay, good, good. So, so I before the call, Canadian. we were doing some tests. I was saying I didn't I didn't hear the Canadian. I asked her to say about, and she said it without the accent. But you fell into it more naturally. Sorry, interrupt. Oh, you. that's good. That's good. I'm happy I sound Canadian. <laughs> I'm very happy to be Canadian. Um, so yeah, I just remember writing all the time. I just, and it's not the writing that was the drive. It was the storytelling. So I just remember always wanting to tell stories and seeing the world in stories and wanting to capture those. And so what did you go to university for? So I did my undergraduate in philosophy and drama, which sounds like uh, not the most job thoughtful. Philosophers are dramatic. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um. But I did it be, for two reasons. Is one, I my favorite part of writing has always been dialogue, and if I could think of making a living at it, I would be a stage writer, hands down. I mean, that's just the type of writing I've loved the most for the longest. And philosophy was a good general degree in terms of. At one point, I thought I might go to law school, so I thought, okay, that's you know a good right. undergraduate to have if that's the path I want to pursue. So. You sound shocked me. You strike me as someone who'd want to go to law school, but probably didn't want to be a lawyer with it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a reasoning degree. It's just a very exactly expensive reasoning it's logic, degree. making these really effective <laughs> arguments. But where else am I going to do this other than law? And if it wasn't two hundred grand, then yeah. you might do it, right? <laughs> well, and then yeah, I had this great friend who whose mom did that, and then she didn't use her law degree, and she said, oh, "I don't know, Ree. I don't know if it's it's the right thing for you. I don't I don't think the reality of being a lawyer is something that that you're prepared to face." So. You know, after that degree, which didn't get me a very specific job because it doesn't yeah. lend itself to specific jobs, I worked for a while where I thought really long and hard about, okay, what do I want to do? And then I, I went back to graduate school and got a degree in international communications. So what was your like first job out of school? My first job out of undergraduate was... Oh man, those, those it was three years and I did everything. I yeah. I worked as a waitress, I worked in a car dealership. Um so nothing I did, tied to your vocation. 
nothing tied to philosophy or drama. <laughs> I mean, I volunteered, you know, if you want to volunteer yeah. in the theater, they'll take you any day of the week. Uh, there's not a lot of high paying jobs available. And then, but once I decided on communications, then I really started to focus. And then I would do, I did an internship and I would volunteer doing communications activities to build a resume and then went and, and got that education. So when I came out of that degree, I could hit the ground running. All right. And I know like before you shifted to sort of writing full time, you worked in Canadian intelligence. Uh, how, yeah. did you, how did you get into that? So this is a pretty random story, but the reason I chose international communications and not just straight communications is international communications offered these courses in diplomatic communications and military communications, and it just clicked for me. So I went to do this degree and I loved my military communications class. I loved it. This is what I want to do. And so what is, can you like military communications, what does that involve? So the part of it that I really like is something they call psyops or psychological yeah. operations, which is winning hearts and minds, right? Yeah. You know, it's the leaflets they used to drop out of airplanes. It's the propaganda posters, loose lips sink ships, stuff like that. I mean, I was really excited about that kind of communicating that the military does. So I went online to figure out how one applies to work in the Canadian military. If you're not going to be a soldier, like right. how, how do you do that? So when I'm scrolling through there's this little tiny section says communication security establishment. And I'm studying communications. I'm like, oh, maybe this is how you do it. And then I click on that and it says, you know, we are Canada's signals intelligence agency. And I was like, oh man, this is exciting. <laughs> I wonder if they need people in communications. So I just applied online. Really, there's nothing more glamorous than that. And then I, I got back to, I'm not from Ottawa, so when I got back to Canada after doing that degree, I just announced to my family I was moving here and I just started to to network and meet people and try to figure out how to work work in that industry. And I, I applied for both defense and intelligence and I intelligence came through with the job offer first. So that's where I went. And so what were the key lessons that, that you learned working in Canadian intelligence? Okay, so are you allowed to share them? Or oh yeah, I mean the lessons, like you know, <laughs> the lessons you can share. Yeah. First of all, I mean, and I'm sure anybody would say this. It's not surprising. It's nothing like the movies. It's nothing like the books. Like it's, it's awesome and exciting. It's not as not as fun looking. No. Yeah, not well, as mysterious. Well, it's a job. Yeah, it's a job. I mean, you know, it's funny because my husband will say, you know, I worked there for over ten years, and he'll say to people, I still have no idea what she did, and people are like, well, how can you do that? How can you keep that secret? I'm like, because. The secret stuff isn't really that interesting. I mean, the stuff you want to, you know, <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, you want to talk about like your your crazy boss or you know the, right. your the, the meetings you can't stand, whatever. It's also a lot of that stuff is a lot. It's a lot of ninety ten, right? It's a lot of you know you, you throw a lot of nets out for yes. catching things that are actually interesting and useful, right? Absolutely. And like there's two basic types of intelligence agencies. One is human intelligence, so you collect information from humans, and the other is signals intelligence, where you collect information from signals. And I was in signals intelligence and those are really complicated. Like there's no one person cruising around picking right. up signals intelligence. They're they're sophisticated and complex I call them machines that have a whole bunch of different specialties and components that have to come together. So one of the really most fascinating things about working there is just all the amazingly cool people you get to work with specializing in stuff you didn't even know existed. Yeah. And so how did this lead you to meet Shane and join him at, at Farnham Street? I'm, I'm very interested to hear how this 
came together. (laughs) Well, actually, he worked there, too. Oh, he was in the same. I got it. That first job? That in in the intelligence agency, it was so it's called CSE. It's uh, very equivalent to the American NSA. So NSA was our major American partner. And Shane and I both worked there. And um, we both worked on the in the same sort of general operational team at one point and just got to know each other. And, you know, in typical Shane style, he started sending me articles that (laughs) he thought I might get something out of and we became friends and and then when he, he'd been running Farnham Street for a while, and actually it took me about a year of being friends with him before he even mentioned it, because like when we first joined and he joined before me, we was were not he doing encouraged. it on the side. Was it still a side thing for him at that point? Yeah. So it was still yeah. a side thing. And it was, it was a bit sensitive because at that time they didn't really want us to have online presence. That was not, they've really changed. Right. Particularly, right? Normal employers don't necessarily like a side gig. I can assume the intelligence agencies maybe don't love a side gig where you're using mental models from intelligence, right? Well, and you're so public, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, it took me a while to figure out that he even had Farnham Street, and then it was about when he he said, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave this this work and I'm gonna go Farnham Street full time. I'd already been thinking about changing. I, there's a lot of things I love about working in intelligence, but ultimately I just didn't think I could do it for 30 years. It's one yeah. of those jobs where, you know, you're, you're fighting battles, but you know, you're never going to win the war. Like it just. No pun intended. Yeah. yeah like <laughs> it, it, it wears on you a little bit after a while or it, not everybody, obviously, but it was wearing on me. So I'd already put, you know, some things in place to make that change. So it was really just at the beginning, great timing. Like he was ready to dive into Farnham street and really, get it going and expand it and, and try to see what potential it had. And I was ready to leave as well. So at that point, what was Farnham Street? Like and how many followers did it have at that point? Like, was it, was it a newsletter and a blog or what uh, helped? Yeah. Reason? So yeah. The, the blog was going, he'd been going, yeah. he'd been running the blog for about five years and he'd started the newsletter. I, I would say maybe a year earlier. And he'd also started doing events our rethink events, which we've had to put on pause because of COVID, but yeah. you know, events about decision making and innovation. So that's that's about where it was. Followers at the time, I feel like we had eighty five thousand subscribers on the on Brain Food, the newsletter. But it was kind of like a who's who of leadership and organization, who. and I mean, Absolutely. it permeated finance industries and all yeah. organically, right? All organic. And they were a good 85,000 followers. Like you said, they were pretty great. So one of the core focuses of of Farnham Street is sharing and explaining mental models. I know you've you've even produced two books on the topic. They're so I guess they're they're very theoretical and I know they can be intimidating to some learners, but how would you explain mental models to someone who hasn't heard of them or, or used them and why they're so effective? Oh, I'm, I, I could probably give you an hour on this, right? Yeah, exactly. So if <laughs> I start to go on, on like you, yeah. you just cut me off, right? <laughs> yeah. But so mental models are essentially thinking tools, right? So you go in life and you learn a whole bunch of facts, but very rarely are you ever taught how to think. You're not really taught how to make decisions, but you have to make tons of them. And some of them have really big consequences. So mental models are just a set of tools that when you have to gather information, when you have to make decisions, when you want to resolve conflict, when you're not getting results, you pull them out. I think of them as lenses, like literally glasses that you look through. So I see the world the way I see it. And then what I do is I pull up this lens 
it's my mental model on map is not the territory or inversion. And I look through it and I say, okay, now what do I see differently? What is being revealed to me? What was the first one you said there? Map is not the territory. Map is not the territory. Yeah, explain that. Yeah. So we often interface with the world through maps. And I think we forget that a lot of the time, right? So a performance review is a map of a person. A person is a much more complex territory than anything you're getting their performance review, right? So, and it, it comes from the literal sense of a map. I mean, when you go to London and you use the tube map, that doesn't tell you much about London other than how to get around on the tube, right? So that idea of this interface that we have, when you pull in a model, so when I pull at that model and I look through it, I say, okay, like, what am I missing here? What is the territory? Um, what, what, how am I just looking through a map and what should I go get more information about to make that map more complete for the needs that I have? So that's really all mental models are. They're, they're almost like thinking prompts that you step back from a situation and you say, okay, when I look through the world through this lens, what am I seeing differently? What questions can I ask and what's new? I'm going to ask you to choose between your children uh, at this point. So what is your favorite (laughs) mental model? So that's super hard. (laughs) I knew knew that was going to be the answer before I even (laughs) asked the question. I'm not able to pick one, but I (laughs) will tell you, I can commit to my number one most useful mental model. First principles. Inversion. Inversion. Okay. Inversion. So inversion is whenever you're in a situation and you don't know what to do, which is a lot of the time, you go to the end and you work backwards. Start with the end in mind. One of my favorite. Start with the end in mind. Yeah. And you go there in your brain, you go to the end. So you're renovating your house, right? What does my dream house look like? At the end of this renovation, where where am I? How do I feel in this space? What kind of functionality does it have? And then you start to work backwards to where you are now. And it's just the most amazing tool. I use it all the time. We used it when we were developing the Great Mental Models books, right? right. So, so I can, an example I can imagine, I had this recently, like any renovation project right now is a disaster. It's late, it's over budget, it's stressing people out. You know, it's going to cost more. I think if, if you're able to say, if I'm living in this, living room and doing X, whatever. Am I going to care that that costs $2,000 more? Because this is like keeping me up right now. And and will it even matter if I get this outcome that I want? Right. Something like that. Yeah. And so that you, you can run it through inversion and you can imagine yourself in that space and notice, is your happiness going to be impacted? Yes or no. If you have that thing. And if you are, if you're going to sit there and be like, you know what, I don't have this functionality and I've just gone through this renovation and I wish I'd put it in. Well, then, yeah, pay the money. How do you always know how you're going to feel? So this is another really interesting <laughs> tool that we use <laughs> with mental models. And this is another one I use all the time. I call it, and this is not my original idea. I got this from a book, um, the Bayesian Casino. So Bayesian updating, right? Which is that you think you know something about the world, and then you learn and you update your information. And if you're really thoughtful, you're going to update your information, update your information. But sometimes you get to this point where you've collected a lot of information and you don't know what to do. So you use this Bayesian casino, which is it's a way of quantifying the information you have in a very clear way. You imagine walking into a casino and you pick your game. I pick roulette because I know it the best. And if I have to make a binary decision, I just go red and black. And I say, what? how much would I bet on being happy 
that I did not add this functionality in my renovation. And you have to quantify it. This is the really important part with the actual money that you actually have in your bank account, right? You can't just pick a random number. You have to think about it. You know, would I bet $20,000 that I'm still going to be happy? Would I bet $20 million? Would I bet my house, you know? And if you would bet 20 grand that you're still going to be happy, you're probably going to be fine. Yeah. You know, it's okay. And that's a way to start a gut check and quantify all this information and all this stuff you've taken in and make it really accessible for yourself. And of course, it's not perfect. It's not a perfect predictor, but it is a way of getting in touch with giving all this information some sort of concrete meaning. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. That's interesting. I, I yeah, I've seen it. I, I we get tied up in the emotion and the frustration in the short term, and it really like takes over versus is this gonna matter in 12 months? <laughs> is yeah. it and, and will it have been worth the, yeah, all the anguish, right? Yeah, and you can use it with people too, right? You know, like this, you have this friend who always seems to let you down. Like, right. is she gonna do it again? You know. Go into that casino, make your bet. Well, the inverse is true too. I found there's the loss, right? There's the, am I going to care this cost too much? But a lot of times I actually think it's the reverse. We are more inclined to overdo something that won't produce buy the extra feature for $500. And you're like, am I going to give a crap about that in eight months? Right. That I've caught myself on many times because when the shine, especially when the shiny new wears off for sure. And it, you know, some of these things it's depreciated 40%. Like, am I, you know, in, in, in three weeks, like, uh, am I going to care? 
I think right. the answer more often is is not. I, I've I've done a lot of real estate renovations, so I, I feel the power of this. My, my wife and I, we made a really good decision on that. There was a place that that we got, and and this is like too much information, but <laughs> they were trying to be cute, and the stools in the kitchen were sort of facing outwards towards the view and the counter, and so they were kind of next to the dishwasher. And we were like, we can't live with this. This will always be in the way. We'll always be moving. We were going to rip out the thing. The guy said he might break the granite. Like we were going to try to flip it around. <laughs> and then we were like, why don't we just live with it for six months and see how yeah. we feel? Never cared about it. Like a single. Exactly. <laughs> and what's super important is to take that in the future, right? Yeah. So always have that story. And then next time you're in that situation, you know, just ask yourself, what did you care about three right. weeks ago that you barely remember now? It's weird that we get that wrong. Like I said, I think we yeah. stress about the spending that actually we won't care about in a year. And then we, on the inverse, we overspend on things that, or, or that we will, I, I mean, you won't care about it because you were happy with the outcome, right? Because you, you got mm-hmm. what you want. You didn't care about the price. And then I do think we overspend on things that we dramatically estimate will interfere with our happiness. Yeah. And that's where, to be honest, like that's where I use mental models all the time yeah. is to try to get out of that sort of irrational gut reaction. I need this. I want this. It's like going back to the reno. Because your brain in the short term, I've always said like you overfocus on something in the short term and then you walk by and you never notice it again. Right. Yeah. So you're like, I, the fact that this is this color is going to piss me off every day. And then it just becomes a something in the background, right? right. Uh, that you don't pay attention to. Exactly. So like, what are the first principles of a renovation? Well, now, now you led there. I, you know, I was, I gave you a choice, but I had read that one of your favorite was first principles. So I you wanted do like to, first principles. can you explain like first principles versus best practices? First principles for me are, I mean, just to use them as a model, right. Yeah. Is about looking for the non-negotiables. I mean, the things that you absolutely, it doesn't matter how much you try, you're never going to change them. So first principles is a model I'll use in conjunction with a lot of others, especially ones from the sciences, because they're very useful. A lot of those are like fundamentals. Um, But first principles to me are like the, the whole chapter in the book actually was inspired by that Warren Buffett quote about how you can't get nine women pregnant for one month and make a baby. Yeah. It just doesn't work. Right. Like yeah. there's a minimum amount of time that a woman needs to grow a baby and give birth. And it's nine months. And there's nothing you're going to do about that. No matter how much you try to wiggle things, that is a non-negotiable. And to me, that's kind of what I mean by when I look for first principles is I look for those non-negotiables. Is it objective non-negotiables or is it value-based non-negotiables when you think about first principles? I think it depends on what we're doing. Okay. So like the last time I used this model was actually this week when I were developing a course on mental models to go with the books. <laughs> and there's, you know, I got a ton of information about mental models in my head. So I was re-looking, we're almost done. So I was re-looking at all the material. This and in is order like to meta eva- mental model, using mental models yeah. on mental models. <laughs> on <laughs> mental models. So in order to evaluate the material, I said, okay, before I just start reading it, let's go back to first principles here. What are the first principles of mental models that anybody needs to know? But also, what are the first principles of online courses? You know, so to me, those are not as subjective. I can figure those things out. But if I'm using first principles on a like a family situation, 
that's a little bit more subjective. Those are a little bit more emotional, which is fine. Right. And Okay. So let's break down those two examples. Let's talk about what are first principles and courses, which might versus in a family, you might say my first principle for the family is that we all get along. That's the overriding thing. And then you say, okay, so I'm not going to complain about sleeping with not Sally's room because that's going to cause chaos in the family, right? Is that sort of exactly? The, yeah. yeah. So in the family, that it becomes more about what are our fundamental values as a family, right? And we can negotiate those together, but we need to agree on those. But they they could be different from family to family. They're not first principles of all families. They're just first principles of our family. And when you thought about the courses, what was the first principle of a course that you came back to? <laughs> well, so this is super interesting. So I did all my work on this. And then I realized that I was straying too far outside my circle of competence, which was another mental model, which is one I, another one I use all the time. So I came up with things that um, it's got to be something that people can do in their spare time, right? Not a lot of people can use work hours to complete these courses. So what does that mean? Maybe the videos have to be in shorter chunks that so I was starting to think like that, but then I got to this point where I was like, okay, Ree, you're getting out of your circle of competence here. You need to go validate some of these assumptions and really determine from somebody who knows much more than you if they are in fact first principles of course development or if there is some wiggle room on how you can present this material. So that's the great thing about first principles, right? Is they start to reveal to you what you absolutely don't know. And what I, I could see, I don't I can't think of an example. Maybe you can't. Is there one where your values and objectivity are in conflict <laughs> in some ways. So you're having a hard time choosing between realizing that like you're, you're trying to manipulate one of those to fit into, to the answer that you're trying to get to. Totally. This is something <laughs> that comes up all the time in writing. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. Fiction or nonfiction. I mean, there's so many times that it, the, the graveyard of examples for the great mental models book is dozens and dozens of pages and it's hard sometimes. It's hard when you, you know, you think you've found the absolute perfect example because that's how you feel. <laughs> and then your objective mind goes, mm, no, there are better examples for this model. You need to bin this. And it, it that can be really hard, right? What's the first principle of your emotional state versus the first principle of what's going to make this book really good for the reader? Yeah, emotion. I'm, I'm taking all these stories that emotion <laughs> may be the main thing that mental models help people overcome because I think right emotion goes right to your limbic brain and it, it, it definitely interferes, I think with rational well, can interfere with rational. Absolutely. I don't want to, I don't want to completely dismiss emotions because they're, totally. they're great in a lot of ways. And I think that if you're connected, I mean, this is just sort of me off the cuff. I've not studied emotions extensively, but if you're, if your emotions are connected to your values and it is really important to listen to them. But I think what mental models help are those sort of knee-jerk responses. Those, you know, when your ego is bruised and you're having this emotional reaction, that's not going to help you. That's not going to help you make a good decision. That's not going to help you get out of this situation. So mental models are really good, I think, for those sort of quick emotions where maybe you feel threatened or rejected or hurt a little. Right. Back to the earlier example, emotion is important if I'm deciding if that's going to make me happy or not or whatever. Like it's yeah. the long-term emotion, not the not the short-term. But a more thoughtful approach to emotions right. versus going with the the immediate emotion. All right. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor and we'll be right back with Rhiannon. Hey everyone. 
As a listener of the Elevate podcast, I wanted to make sure you knew about the Elevate Club. The Elevate Club is a new and exclusive membership community where over 100 members from around the world are working together to build their capacity. The Elevate Club is where I'm investing most of my time to connect with readers and listeners and answer their questions. Members of the Elevate Club get 12 months of access to a private Slack community for experience sharing and peer learning, private keynotes with me, monthly office hours, and free access to my courses on core values or remote work for up to three people. To learn more about the Elevate Club and sign up today, just go to elevate-club.com. That's E-L-E-V-A-T-E-club.com. Or you can click on the link in the show notes. I hope to see you in the Elevate Club. And we're back. All right. So now I'm going to make a mess of combining a couple of questions that I wanted to ask, but but it came sure. together perfectly. So so you, you've written about the importance of understanding and staying within the circle of competence. You, you mentioned that before. I think to and, crit, and critical thinking, you kind of talked about before, I think, you know, helping like I think that something we're very devoid of right now. COVID, right? So like, I, I'm sure you could write 10 books around this related to COVID. It occurs to me, complete lack of critical thinking we've seen everyone outside of their circle of competence. Yeah, but, but totally. not only are they outside of their circle of competence, they are they are emphatic with their reasoning and stuff. So <laughs> I, I don't even know where to go with this question, but talk to me about COVID and people's expertise so far out of their sandbox and cognitive bias and dissonance. And like, this just seems like a mental model, like dream for someone to look at of where we need them. So (laughs) actually, you know, (laughs) I did an article when, when in the first sort of six months that COVID hit about mental models for a pandemic, which was exactly (laughs) this, which is just, you know, here, here's some ideas on some thinking tools that you can help sort through this barrage of information. So to be honest with you, uh, I ignore a lot of it. Because the, the, when I use the models, it tells me, okay, like, you know, you use first principles. Well, I, there's some things we just don't know yet. It's, it, this is new, you know, um, but you use first principles when you look at vaccines. So I, I read about how the polio vaccine was developed. You know, I wasn't focusing on the COVID vaccine. This is new, but let's I, learn about that. I did a vac- similar thing. I actually went and read all of the disasters of past vaccines uh, and what group. <laughs> and I actually found that they came into a few groupings and I felt okay. pretty comfortable. It was interesting. They were all, uh, they were given a live vaccine, you know, which okay. isn't done anymore. Right. The actual vaccine was contaminated in the process, which could happen oh. to any drug or, or otherwise, or mm-hmm. the vast majority of side effects were, were very visible within eight weeks, but they right. also mimicked actually getting the underlying disease. Uh, okay. And so I got, I was like, I was looking for the worst, like what were the worst ones? And I actually, yeah. I thought they were pretty interesting after finding like, those were the three, those are the buckets of, of disasters historically. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So for me, it was just, let's learn from history here. You know, I also read about um, drug approval failures, you know, thalidomide, like one of the, the biggest tragedies yeah. on that front, but it actually made me not scared because you know, we learned a lot from thalidomide and there's a lot more checks and balances now. So for me, it's just been a, I do break out the models when I'm dealing with people I really care about and I want to help them sort through some of this information, like my parents, right? You know, when the when COVID hit, it was hitting seniors really hard, then the vaccines were coming and it's like, okay, 
let's break this down. Let's look at who you are. What are your health conditions? What are the, the, the pros and cons? The, what are the things we're seeing from these vaccines? Like, and I, I use mental models with them to help them get to a decision they were comfortable with, but it wasn't something that I just sort of decided to take on the world with because it just seemed to be <laughs> getting very noisy. The, the problem is with social media is that someone has a million followers and they state something with no basis, totally out of their lane. And they appear to, I don't know where they appear to have authority, but a lot of people listen to that. And, I know. and that this seems to be like a new phenomenon we haven't had to deal with before, because in the past it took a lot more work to get a, an audience and yeah. it usually was around your expertise. You didn't have, you know, if you were world renowned, scientists like you, you no one no one called you up to you know get your opinion on a movie <laughs> <laughs> totally true and also it used to be a lot more localized to your community right because information just spread a lot more slowly yeah so you were convincing like the people next door to you not people across the world tribalism it's a huge problem in, in yeah. this right what what are what are some models that can get people to, again, think for themselves or look at the fact? Because I think your point, and I heard a couple of doctors speak and I shared their podcast. It was just the most objective thing. It's super nuanced, the whole issue, right? There, mm-hmm. it, We want to have clean policies for everyone, but it's super nuanced. You know, If mm-hmm. you're a 22-year-old runner, you might make a different decision than a uh, someone who's very overweight with diabetes and 62. It's probably not mm-hmm. a one-size-fits-all on a variety of of choices. Um, so like I'm, I'm more disturbed. I think I think I'm most disturbed. I read in the tribalism these days that people's ideas are their identity. And like, Mm -hmm. you're all in the business of these models to help you objectify ideas. So like help, like, how can you (laughs) help everyone with this? (laughs) That's such a tall order. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so one of the books I read recently, which I absolutely love, so just take a step away from the models to just put some yeah. context around it was um, Identity and Violence by yeah. Amartya Sen. Sounds relevant, yeah. And it's it's fantastic. I mean, it is just a, such a, I mean, he wrote it ages ago, but it's so timely for right now. And in it, he talks about how identities in reality are very complex. So one of the things that I've always struggled with is as soon as it seems now these days, you identify with one thing whatever it may be, let's like pick something right. obvious and controversial. Like you are decide you follow one political party. Yeah. So or, you do that. Let's, let's keep this in. Look, vaccines are good or vaccines are bad. Okay. Vaccines are good or bad. So yeah. if you say vaccines are bad, let's say, then all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of other identities associated with you that may or may not represent who you are. So I think the first thing is to one. So another model I love that's not in the first book, it's in the second book, which is relativity, which comes from physics, which is to just remember that position matters. So another fantastic book I read once is called On Dialogue. And it was talked about how to talk to people who seem to think they believe fundamentally different things from you. And when you combine those two books, you realize there's very few people in the world that you don't have one, at least one identity in common with. Right. So like everybody in the United States or Canada, no matter what political party you vote for, one identity you all have in common is that you're American or Canadian. So when you start to look at the only common, but (laughs) (laughs) But 
it's there, right? Yeah. I mean, so you start with that, you, you start with that position. Okay, so this person may believe this one thing that's different from me, but they do have things in common with me. So that's a way to open up the dialogue, right? That's a way to say, okay, it doesn't have to be coming at it like this. It's how can we, and another great model for this is reciprocity, right? How can we get through this situation in a win-win, right? And a win-win is sometimes just, I hear you, you hear me. You know, acknowledging somebody's perspective doesn't mean you agree with it. Yeah. And sometimes just feeling acknowledged that I can have this perspective. Right. I hear it. I respect it. I don't agree with it. I don't agree with it, but we can still be in the room together and we can still have a conversation together. I think that what that does for me is it starts to just make the walls a little bit more porous, right? It just starts to allow on from both directions, a little bit more information to trickle through because right. we're not so firm about being like, well, no, this person is nothing like me. We have nothing in common. And in fact, they're out to get me and they want me to be different than I am. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, a cognitive dissonance is so relevant to this, right? It's just, to me, it's like the most powerful force in the universe, not to be mm -hmm. hyperbole, but because to this identity thing, what, what I continue, I, I, people have such a problem. Let's just, let's go with the green and the purple party. Like that'll be easier, okay. right? And, we and, have those in Canada, by the way. But... Do, you do? Okay. <laughs> so, okay, that's okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, largely American audience. We can go... <laughs> orange and whatever. Okay. Yeah. So, so we have the green and the purple party. Like I, I have voted purple party, but, but there is a candidate, you know, in my party who I don't like some of their ideas. You know, I, I it becomes so hard to say like, it, it feels like it has to be all or nothing, you know, these right. days rather than I vote this party, but I actually don't like this candidate in the party, or I don't agree with their ideas but I can't separate, you know, that it feels like it has to be, I don't know why it just feels like it has to be all or nothing these days. Well, I think I, I have read before that, you know, North Americans are really, we're really big into the binary. Like we're really, we're really binary thinkers. And I don't know if that comes down from Descartes and just, you know, you are, or you're not, but we're, we love the binary and to be or not to be. Yeah, like what's well, so the one way to it, it to there, but it's there are other cultures that are a little bit more comfortable with instead of either or this end or neither. And I think that it is possible to say, like you just said, you know, I support this party, but I can also not support this candidate. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that just actually means you've taken the time to learn 
and develop some nuance about the situation that you're in. Maybe it's just about not not attacking people for not being all or nothing, right? To just say it's okay. It's yeah, okay I, to be nuanced. And I, I, it's very made hard by the politician to use incendiary definitions of the other side, right? Just of course, it, it just sort of inflames it. But what I, it seems like critical thinking is is a dying skill set. Like, how would you teach critical thinking? How would you encourage that for kids, like people to take information? assess the source, make their own decision. I, I don't know. It just feels like one of the biggest losses of skills in, in society these days. Cause we retweet, we say, Oh, right. Rhiannon said this, but I follow her and I like her. So I don't even val. I didn't even think about it or validate it, yeah. but I just forward it to other people. Right. Right. So this is the uh, an amazing question because this project we started in the fall is actually turning the great mental models volume one into a textbook. And we hired this woman who's just got the most energy I've ever seen in my life. And she is uh, a high school teacher, ex-high school teacher. And she's created this whole program for teaching the great mental models to high school students. And we're piloting at a school in Texas. And it starts tomorrow uh, on Monday. And the, the feedback that we're getting from the teachers is just they're so excited because it's exactly what you said. It's let's teach some critical thinking. It's not about knowing the facts. It's about being able to sort through the information. You know, you can get the facts on your own these days, but do you have the tools to get them? And do you know what a fact versus an opinion looks exactly. like? Exactly. Right? <laughs> it's doing that critical thinking to be able to, to address those issues. So we're super excited about this high school project. I, I can't wait for it to really get going. Um, but also speaking to that, I I've taught my kids mental models. I mean, I, I teach them right from the get-go. I mean, to me, there's there's no age limit on these things. Like, it's not like you have to have a certain level of experience or expertise to be able to use them. I mean, these are... This is how we think. I mean, we all think in models anyway. So I always say we owe it to ourselves to have the best ones possible. So these are really accessible concepts. They're not just for special people. They're for everybody. Seems like it's like upgrading your operating system a little bit, right? Yeah. Because yeah. you, you think in models anyway, right? Yeah. You, you absolutely do. You Most of them, though, are like half-remembered things you learned in school, full yeah. of assumptions, full of bias. Some parental thing that was told to you that's not appropriate. Exactly. Or right. You know, yeah. that you've just been kind of, you know, has been yeah. in your head for the last 30 years. So mental models, like all we're saying is th they're not new, but what is new is this idea of maybe deliberately constructing them to actually starting with a blank slate, learning a concept from scratch and being very honest with yourself when you're using it. We talk about connecting with the world as it is, right? Not as you want it to be, because that's not very useful. Yeah. You're going to make better decisions. You're going to have better outcomes the more you connect with the world as it really is. And this is like, you, it was really great that you started with the Charlie Munger quote, because this is all inspired by Charlie Munger, right? He's it's got just the learning. best quotes. I think his are yeah. conflated with Buffett's a lot. I mean, yeah. one of my favorite from all time is show me the incentive and I'll tell you the behavior. Like I, yeah. I use that all the time. Yeah, yeah, like never, you know, <laughs> he's like he a says, human like, quote machine. Like it's, yeah. But it's like the reason he can do it, I'm sure, is because years of being deliberate about his learning and constructing models and putting them in a lattice work and using them and reflecting and using them again. Putting them in a lattice score. Talk a little bit about that. Oh, so again, totally inspired by Charlie Munger, but knowledge isn't as useful if it just is isolated and you don't make connections. What you really want to do is learn something. When you learn something new, connect it to things you already know. 
that you can start to see patterns better, or you can make better associations. So when you're confronted with new information or you're in a new situation, you can process a lot more quickly because you're able to bring in a whole bunch of varied knowledge through your models to apply to that situation. So it's bringing context and experience to the model. Yeah. Yeah. So we started with this and then I derailed you with this massive question of COVID, but can you get that? <laughs> so, so I'm actually just want the answer to like staying within your circle of, of competence. Can you talk about that? And I'm curious what, what you consider to be your own circle of competence. So I, I do divide up little circles within my circle. So there's like a couple of things I think I'm amazing at, but there's not very many of those. There's like three. And then the circle expands and things I'm pretty good at and things I wish I were better at and things I don't know at all. And so it kind of branches out, but it's a a model I use all the time. I can't imagine any writer who doesn't because no book is ever put out by one person and knowing when you need to engage with other people in the writing process, whether it's your editor or your designer or your proofreader or your reviewers, it's really important to know when you need to, because everybody has opinions, right? Everybody has comments. Everybody has suggestions on how you can make this better. So part of having a circle of competence is knowing who to listen to and when to listen to them, right? Yeah. So I think as a writer, one of my best skills is dialogue. So I am very unlikely to listen to anybody else regarding how to improve my dialogue unless they are also really, really great at dialogue. But there's other parts of writing that I am not so fantastic at. And so I know that they are, they're parts of my competence I'm building, but nowhere near as good as, as the stuff right in the center. Right. There's two ways I I think of this one. I think Adam Grant, you know, wrote about this in terms of like, we, we generally overestimate our things in one area in terms of another. So from ourselves, Mm -hmm. we, we, you know, have a blind spot, but then Mm -hmm. it's also occurs like, I, I need to think about that from other people perspective, right. Mm-hmm. In terms of like, Oh, you know, you're so smart on this issue that then I just trust your judgment on wine and you know, nothing about wine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I, so, so it's a very tricky thing both ways. Right. Yeah. 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 So exactly. So part of the work of life is identifying, especially the people you work with frequently or the the areas you need help is identifying who, who has that circle of competence. Yeah. And, and understanding that the things that people, uh, let me tie these confidence together. I don't know if it was Adam or someone else said it, that some people, again, because they're great at a few things, you, when you talked about that, your sort of level of confidence, you're like, I'm great at da da da. I'm good at like, it almost drops in your language, right? Other right. people don't make that distinction between they let their <laughs> confidence carry out to those, to those circles and probably cause some harm for other people because they very confidently have no experience in what they're talking about. Right. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Um, the thing is though, is I, the reason circle of competence is I use it a lot is because, you know, when you stray too far outside your circle without knowing you're outside your circle, life can slap you back pretty hard as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that kind of feedback, I mean, the world is great at giving that kind of feedback. Now, not always, you know, some people manage to, to stray outside and, and not get that kind of feedback, but a lot of us do. Well, I, I think I read the more success in ha- you have in one area, you're, you're, you often just misapply that, you know, you had good timing, you had, pr- you, you, but you just misapply right. that sort of 
hubris to other areas and think you're going to be just as just as easy or you'll be just as good. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where reflection is super important, right? Like we use, we have a Farnham Street decision journal. I journal a lot and I reflect a lot. So whenever something, whenever I've made some, and on big things, like not the daily decisions, whenever I've made some really fantastic decision, you know, I have a little record of what was my, what was I thinking at the beginning of that process? What kind of process did I go through? So I learn, you know, what are the things I should keep doing and what are the things I can just throw down to luck and not get too high on myself that, you know, (laughs) I'm going to make great decisions every time. Uh, Yeah. I I love, um, you know, Ray Dalio is big on first principles. Yeah. They have this mistake journal there where, uh, you know, not mistake log where we're making a mistake is not a fireable offense, but failing to put a mistake in the mistake log is a fireable expense, which I think is interesting. Well, because that's how you learn, right? right. I mean, you got to learn from your own mistakes, but you also have to learn from other people's mistakes. Because you know, what's that quote? You don't have enough time to it's make much your own. better to learn from other people's mistakes. Like, yeah, uh, and you just don't have enough time in life to make them all yourself, right? That's the quote. So that's the idea, I'm sure, behind it is that it's also learning. Yeah, there's a school near us, uh, Babson, super entrepreneurial program, one of the top entrepreneurial schools in the country. Used to have a lot of interns from there. They'd be in college, like starting businesses, dealing with shareholder lawsuits. And, and, and one guy was like, go like, <laughs> go enjoy yourself and go work for someone and like learn this stuff on their dime. Rather than, you know, and, then, and then it's really, I just remember being like, he's had this shareholder lawsuit. It's like a junior in college. I was like, yeah, yeah. learn from other people's mistakes. So you don't have to make these and you can do them yeah. later on. Yeah. All right. Last question for you um, related to that. What's a, this is multivariant. So you only have to answer it once, but you have choices because it can be singular or repeated or professional and personal, but what's a mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from? I think that's, I think that's a really difficult question. Um, Professionally, the mistakes that I made a lot at the beginning of my career were that I didn't take enough risk. You know, I would only apply for jobs that I knew I could do all parts of them. And I think that held me back at the beginning of my career. And I learned from those because I watched other people move into positions that were that I wanted, that were interesting. Why wasn't I getting these? Well, I wasn't even applying for them. So those early mistakes of not applying for things that I really wanted because part of me was like, well, I haven't done like, let's say they need five experience criteria. Well, I've only done four. I haven't done this fifth, so I shouldn't right. apply. And so there were a couple jobs early on, uh, especially when I started working in intelligence that I missed out on because I didn't apply for them. And I learned very quickly that there's no harm in applying. I mean, the worst that's going right. to happen is they're going to say, you're not our candidate. And, and that's, a, that's a really good point. And I don't know the order of these episodes that will come out, but I just right. interviewed Dan Pink for his new book on regret. And one of the things that he determined is that in this is that almost all regret is things that we didn't do, not things right. that we did. So absolutely, absolutely. So <laughs> I mean, there wasn't one particular job that was, but it was just that that time in my life where yeah. I just wasn't willing to take enough risk and go for it, and that's when I did a lot of learning. And I'm I'm happy I learned those lessons because I was able to not keep making that mistake. Awesome. Well, Rhiannon, where can people find out more about you and your work? 
So I have a website, rhiannonbogian.com, that talks a lot more about the spy novel, Alone Among Spies, and has a chapter. But also, if people want to know more about the great mental models, mental models in general, it's fs.blog. And we have a ton of resources on there about how to learn and use mental models to improve your life. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me today. Fascinating conversation. I will be I'll be using models at least for the next few days. Anytime (laughs) they'll be very conscious for me. Anytime anyone asks me anything. That's fantastic. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. It's been really wonderful. All right. You can learn more about Rhiannon and her work on the episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helped new users discover the show and the content. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, just select the library icon on the bottom of your phone, click on Elevate, and scroll down to the bottom to leave a rating and review. If you're listening in your browser or a different app, you can find links to do the same on services such as Google Play and Stitcher um, by following the link on our subscription page at robertglazer.com. Thanks you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.